0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Evangelicalism, When Labels Are Libels. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January twenty-fifth, two 2015. Are you an evangelical? I hope so. It's a trick question, of course, especially for a word that's so controversial and complex. Evangelical is one of those words that dies the death of a thousand qualifications. That's a shame, because it's an important word. Far beyond mere knee-jerk reactions, today you can read sophisticated studies about evangelicals from every imaginable perspective—historical, cultural, ethnic— sociological, gender, economic, political, ecclesiastical, missiological, theological, and biblical. I like to joke that I can't decide whether I'm an evangelical liberal or a liberal evangelical. But then my mind wanders to the far broader diversity of traditions that could be included under the umbrella term evangelical. Dutch Calvinists. African-American Baptists, all manner of Anabaptists, Catholic Charismatics, Converts to Orthodoxy, Episcopalians in Africa, Brazilian and and Korean Pentecostals, the Southern Baptist Convention, and, let's not forget, the original evangelicals in America, the Methodists, thanks to the transatlantic preaching of the British John Wesley. A friend of mine described labels as training wheels for the mind. Labels help us to begin thinking about complex issues, he says, but they inhibit our progress if we rely upon them beyond basic categories of analysis. Labels become libels when they're reductionistic. They can distort the complex by invoking the simplistic. And who wants to be dismissed by or described by a single word? Every person is much more than any label. Despite these disclaimers, I want to keep the word evangelical in my Christian vocabulary. A Greek word in the Gospel for this week explains why. The very first sentence of the Gospel of Mark reads, The beginning of the euangelion of Jesus Christ. A few paragraphs later, Mark describes how after living in total obscurity for 30 years, Jesus burst onto the scene, quote, proclaiming the euangelion of God, saying, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the euangelion. So, Jesus himself is the euangelion the good news, or the gospel of God. An evangelical, then, thus keeps the main thing, the main thing. Jesus is God's good news. This word, Greek word, euangelion and its derivatives occur about 80 times in the Greek New Testament. That's one reason why Martin Luther thought that the Latin version, version, Evangelium, was the perfect word to describe his radical movement that spread like wildfire across 16th century Europe. And so, in his native German tongue, the Evangelisca Kirche, in contrast to what he thought were the distortions, corruptions, and accretions of medieval Catholicism, that had obscured the simple good news of God in Christ. An evangelical, then, also identifies with the Protestant Reformation. There are numerous competitors and imitators when it comes to good news. Consider this inscription from Asia Minor from about the year 9 B.C. that describes Caesar Augustus. Quote, The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us as a savior has put an end to war. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, Evangelian. I'm not a fan of the former Pope Benedict Sixteenth, but I like what he says about this word euangelium and how it elucidates the peon of praise to Caesar Augustus. In his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict writes, both evangelists designate Jesus' preaching with the Greek term Evangelion. But what does that actually mean? The term has been recently translated as good news. That sounds attractive, but it falls far short of the order of magnitude of what is actually meant by the word Evangelion. This term figures in the vocabulary of the Roman emperors, who understood themselves as lords, saviors, and redeemers of the world. The message issued by the emperor were called in Latin, Evangelium, regardless of whether or not their content was particularly cheerful and pleasant. The idea was that what comes from the emperor is a saving message, that it is not just a piece of news, but a change of the world for the better. And so, when the evangelists adopt this word, and it thereby becomes the generic name for their writings, what they mean to tell us is this. What the emperors who pretend to be gods illegitimately claim really occurs here, a message endowed with plenary authority, a message that is not just talk, but reality. In the vocabulary of contemporary linguistic theory, we would say that the Evangelium, The gospel is not just informative speech, but performative speech. Not just the imparting of information, but action. Efficacious power that enters into the world to save and transform. Mark speaks of the gospel of God. The point being that it is not the emperors who can save the world, but God. And it is here that God's word, which is at once word and deed, Appears, It is here that what the emperors merely assert, but cannot actually perform, truly takes place. For here it is the real Lord of the world, the living God, who goes into action. The toxic combination of illusion and idolatry is precisely how politics tempts us and also what the followers of Jesus reject. The early Christian confession that Jesus is Lord thus includes an implicit political claim. Caesar is not Lord. In the Gospel for this week, Jesus said the kairos has come. The Greek word kairos denotes a critical juncture, a divine appointment or intervention, in contrast to prosaic chronos, or everyday clock time. You might yawn at chronos, and forget whether it's Wednesday or Thursday, but kairos provokes a radical response, an urgent choice, or a fundamental reorientation. It invites us, says Mark, to repent, to change our minds and actions, just like the Ninevites did in this week's Old Testament reading from Jonah. When Mark announced the Evangelion of God, Jesus identified God's kingdom with his own person. That's why he invited Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, Come, follow me. Mark is unambiguous about their unequivocal response. We read, At once, they left their nets and followed him. And to punctuate the point, Mark adds that when they had gone a little farther, Jesus called a second set of brothers, James and John, who were at their work in the boats. They too left everything at once to follow Jesus, their father, the hired help, the boat, and their nets. Jesus proclaimed that God's kairos has come and his kingdom is near. Repent and believe the euangelion. In this week's epistle, written about 30 years after Jesus, Paul used remarkably similar language in his letter to the Corinthians. He writes, The kairos is short. This world in its present form is passing away. Scholars debate what Paul meant when he said that the time has been shortened. Maybe his death was imminent, that he believed Jesus was to return soon, or that he was alluding to specific matters at Corinth that are now long lost to us. But whatever he meant, there's no ambiguity in the response he urged due to the crisis of the Kairos. He cautioned against any postponement, entanglements, or distractions. He eliminated any middle ground and called for an either-or decision. The married, the mourning, the exuberant, the buyers and sellers should live as if the normal canons of Kronos did not adhere. The fulfillment in Jesus and the foreshortening by Paul of God's kairos meant that one should no longer live business as usual. The announcement of God's Evangelion in Jesus should elicit a radical revolution in life's journey. So, yes, I'm an evangelical according to the Gospel of Mark, or so I hope. For books this week, we review a book by Barbara Brown Taylor. It's called Learning to Walk in the Dark, New York, HarperCollins, 2014, 195 pages. This book review is by Debbie Thomas. Barbara Brown Taylor, a New York Times bestselling author, Episcopal priest, and professor of religion, believes that Christian teaching has done believers a disservice by dividing reality into opposing pairs. For example, spirit, flesh, good, evil, church, world, sacred, profane. In this new book, she interweaves personal experiences of exploring caves, experimenting with blindness and spending a night in the woods without electricity, all to deconstruct one of these pairs, light versus darkness. Rereading Scripture to explore times when God shows up in the dark, Taylor makes a compelling case for what she calls lunar spirituality, a spirituality that sees God's hand not only in the bright periods of our lives, but also in times when the light wanes and we find ourselves struggling with uncertainty, doubt, loss, or despair. Often it is in the darkness, Taylor suggests, that God teaches us the most about himself. As in her earlier works of spiritual nonfiction, Leaving Church, 2007, and her 2010 book, An Altar in the World, Taylor's new book offers a fresh and unconventional perspective on Christian discipleship, and does so in prose that is warm, lively, and engaging. This is an elegant and worthy addition to Taylor's already formidable body of work. Barbara Brown Taylor, Learning to Walk in the Dark. For Movies This Week, I review a Netflix streaming movie, a so-called Netflix original. It's called Print the Legend, 2014. This documentary film is a Netflix original about the revolution and disruptions caused by 3D printing. It premiered at Austin's Southwest film festival. You learn a little about 3D printing, but the real focus of the film is on the competitive mashup of four key players in the 3D printing space. First, 3D systems pioneered the technology way back in 1989 under CEO Avi Reichenthal. but those were big and expensive machines meant for industrial customers. The real revolution started in 2009 with MakerBot and its founder, Bray Pettis, the poster boy for mass-market consumer-oriented 3D printers. Third, enter Max Slabovsky, who started Formlabs. And then finally, the anarchist Cody Wilson, who printed guns via open-source software in a hugely popular YouTube video. This is an interesting film about the ruthless world of startups and the unintended consequences and opportunities of new technologies. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Print the Legend, 2014. And for poetry this week, into our busy lives, we've posted a poem by Alexander Pope. It's called Ode on Solitude. Alexander Pope lived from 1688 to 1744. How happy he who free from care the rage of courts and noise of towns, contented breathes his native air in his own grounds. Whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade, and in winter fire. Blessed who can unconcernedly find hours, days, and years slide swift away, in health of body, peace of mind, quiet by the day. Sound sleep by night, Study and ease together mixed, sweet recreation and innocence, which most doth please with meditation. Thus let me live, unheard, unknown. Thus unlamented, let me die. Steal from the world, and not a stone, tell where I lie. An Ode on Solitude by Alexander Pope Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 25th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.